called these things happen. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's a funny word that simply pretty well just means the preacher. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, passage of scripture I have no doubt preached from before and no doubt will preach from again. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and starting at verse 9. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And every married couple understands that, you ladies with your cold feet and cold hands. And verse 12 says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Amen. This passage of Scripture covers a few principles, but it begins with reinforcing to us the benefits of not being alone, of not being in this life all alone. And whether it is when we fall down, whether literally or spiritually and need a hand to get up, or if we are cold, having somebody lying close by can warm us up, then it shifts gears a little bit and it seems to use an example of a battle or some form of opposition where a person uh, on their own is easily prevailed against or easily defeated. But the fact that the next step says that two shall withstand him or the idea of two people back to back is a lot tougher challenge. And then adding the image of a cord or a rope, we see that three strands are especially strong and resilient. And it's from that platform this morning that I want to preach or teach perhaps more than preach on the idea of a threefold cord to hang on to threefold cord to hold on to let's pray father we love you we just feel your presence so richly in your house this morning as we've worshiped you and just so grateful lord for the move of your spirit and we just pray that as we open your word together that you'd help us lord god for we know that your word is powerful we know it's alive and we just want you to have your way in this place today we pray in jesus name amen the gospel's when Jesus gave us the parable of the sower and the seed, I think it's found in Matthew and in Luke, it was made clear that although the quality of the seed was unchanging, the four types of ground or soil produced four different outcomes. This lets us know that not only are there people that will reject the Word of God outright, but that there are also those who will start on this journey and not complete it. And some that will start on it, but not ever really be fruitful in it. If you want to read that later, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And I've taught many times, and I believe very, very strongly, that you are not predestined to be a particular kind of soil. But in fact, you can choose to be good soil. You can choose to receive the word with gladness, and you can choose to be fruitful. I don't think any of us can just go, well, I was just born stony ground. That's how it is, or... I was just born the wayside and I'm just, I'm just not meant to be fruitful. I'm just not meant to respond to the Word of God. I don't believe that's the principle that that parable is given to us for, but rather it's encouraging us to be good ground, to receive the seed, to receive the Word, to respond with gladness and to choose to be fruitful. Amen. I, I don't believe that the Lord's working on some minimum success rate. But even with that in mind, even through the writings of the Apostle Paul, 
and through our own experiences in the present, in our own lives, in our own church, in our own history, we know that there are some people that do not finish the course with the Lord. And they, those people are tragically casualties of sin and of heartache. And uh, I don't want that to be a negative, I, well, it is a negative statement, but I don't want it to finish negative because, again, I want to underline the fact that all of us are designed by God with the capability and the capacity to succeed in our Christian life and to finish the course. Philippians 1 and 6, Paul said that he was confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So even even if you've only responded to the gospel, even if you're just thinking about it and God is dealing with your heart and there's some changes going on and nobody's even seen them yet, if God has started something, He has designed it to be successful. He has designed it so that when He returns, He has provided everything that is necessary for you to make it all the way. Amen. I hope you believe that this morning. If you're in a hard place this morning, know this. God made you to succeed. God has changed your life so that you could finish the course. Not, not success. You know what success is? Success as a Christian is? Ultimate success is being ready for when He returns. Success in between now and then is finding His will for our lives and doing it with all of our heart. Amen. A salesperson in this world knows whether you think of, you know, the people that years ago used to come, people don't come to sell vacuums to your house anymore very much. Maybe nowadays it's uh, solar panels or roller shutters or Foxtel, uh, whatever it might be. People come and they knock on you. Those salespeople know that it will statistically take them a certain number of conversations and demonstrations of their product before they will make a sale. They recognize that there is a percentage of rejection and failure no matter how good a salesperson they are before they will make a sale. That is not how the kingdom of God works. If God has reached your heart, He has given you the ability to be successful in the kingdom of God and given you everything that you need to go all the way to glory. And if you are considering thoughts that are contrary to that, those thoughts are not from God. Because it's not about you and me. It's about Him. That's why we have that story that is so simple and yet so powerful that many of us learnt in Sunday school about a man who built his house upon sand and a man who built his house upon the rock. The issue was never the house. The issue was always the foundation. Both houses experienced the same storm. One stood, one fell. It doesn't say that somebody was a lousy builder and didn't build a strong house and the other person built a really cyclone-proof house. It talks about what you are built on. And so if you are built upon the rock, if you are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, He has designed you to survive every storm, every opposition, and everything that comes against you and still be standing at the end. Amen. Bless the Lord. He wants us to be victorious. The only thing that God does not take away when you're born again is your free will. Your ability to choose what you will do, how you will respond, and if you will trust Him. And it's at that point that tragically failure occurs in the lives of too many people because they choose not to trust the Lord. They choose not to respond in the fashion that God requires. And that's where things fall to pieces. 
So I'm going to cover what I hope this morning are three strands that we all need to hold on to that will keep us through the ups and downs of life and keep you until the day of his soon return. Some of you have guessed some of these are already, no doubt. But the first strand, and I will say from the outset, the most important strand is the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, God breathed it. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished under all good works. That word perfect means complete. Truly furnished means fully equipped. In other words, God's not leaving you half done. He's giving you everything that you need to be what He wants you to be. We, I think we say it, but sometimes the Word of God is more important than we can really comprehend. Men have given their lives. If you have an English Bible, I can't speak to you about translations in other languages because I don't know enough about them. But if you are the owner of an English Bible, people died so that you could have that Bible. People thought you being able to hold one in your hand was worth their lives. But that's not what makes the Word of God so important. The Scripture is also, as far as I'm aware, still the best-selling book of all time. And yet that's not what makes it important. Many nations, particularly in the Western world, have founded their legal system upon its principles. But that's still not what makes it important. What makes the Word of God so important is that it is the only avenue by which sinful humanity is able to be made aware of the grace and mercy and gospel of Jesus Christ and by being obedient by faith find salvation for their souls. That's what makes the Word of God so important. And we live in a world that is flooded with philosophies, religions, cults, social and political movements. The only way to make some sense of all of that is to have a yardstick is to have some source of truth that we can measure these things against. You know, it's funny, we still use the word yardstick, but we don't use yards anymore. Meter stick sounds weird. But a yardstick is a set measurement so you can check the length of something. We use measuring tapes. If you're going to build a house, you don't guess how high the walls should be. At least I hope not. Things are measured. And even when it comes down to the metric system, things like meters and so on and so on, there are... There are measurements that are kept that are the ultimate measurement that everything is measured against so that we don't just go well it's roughly a meter or give or take a few centimeters or there are ways that we measure things the word of god is given to us as an unchanging yardstick amen and we need to know what it says acts chapter 17 and verse 11 says that these the people this is talking about believers in a place called berea These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, but then there is a comma, not a full stop, and searched the Scriptures daily. Why? To see if these things were so. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and 16. He said, take heed unto yourself. Pay attention, young man. How and unto the doctrine, sorry, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Timothy was instructed to take heed to himself, how he lived, the manner in which he conducted himself, the way he demonstrated the kind of things that he taught, and unto doctrine, teaching. That's all doctrine is. If Timothy had to be careful about his life and what he was teaching, then it is obvious that there were those who lived lives 
and taught doctrines that were not consistent with the Scriptures. In fact, in verse 6 of the same chapter, Paul reminds Timothy of the good doctrine that he'd been taught. If there's good doctrine, it stands to reason that there's not so good doctrine. Amen. What would define bad doctrine? Simply teaching that is without biblical foundation or even in opposition to the Word of God. How important did the Apostle Paul consider these things? He said to Timothy that if you do them, in doing this, you'll save yourself and them that hear thee. That's how much the Word of God matters. That's how much you have to have a yardstick that doesn't change because you save your own soul and the people that hear you. Some of Scripture is not easy to swallow. There's bits that if I had editor's privileges, I'd probably take out. But I don't have that authority. Some of the things that are written in the Word of God go against our nature. They go against our culture. They go against our society. But all of those things are changing and passing away. But Matthew 24 and 35 says that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. We've touched on it already, but the Scriptures are our foundation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. I say this regularly, but I'm going to say it, continue to say it regularly. You need to know the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God. If you are unable to use a measuring tape, how will you know how to check what you believe. How can we measure if we don't know how to use the tape? If you simply believe something because I said so, that's not enough. I hope I'm trustworthy. But just because the pastor said so is not enough. As the pastor, I will answer to God for what I teach. But you will answer to God for what you believe. It's a shared responsibility. You can't just offload it onto me, unfortunately. We're all responsible, like they did in Berea, to search the Scriptures. Why? To see if these things were so. To find out if, it li- if what Paul said lined up with what the Scriptures said. We, we need to be able to measure. You know, it'd be nice if everybody measured the same way. Who's ever tried to buy clothes online? Did you know that a medium here is not the same as a medium in another country? All mediums are not created equal. We all, you know, that's why you've got to be very careful buying things online. Yeah, well, I'm a such and such a size and the package comes in the mail and you're like, I don't think I ordered that. I was in Indonesia quite a few years ago and uh, had some downtime between our service schedule and just walking around a shopping mall, passing time and went into this menswear store. Really nice looking high-end kind of clothes. I went in there and the man was very, I was the only customer in the whole shop. And the man was very excited to see him. He said, oh, he said, I've got a shirt that'll fit you. I said, okay. And he brought that shirt out. It was the biggest shirt he had in the shop. And uh, I went into the change room. Those buttons couldn't even see each other, let alone get together. And I came out and I said, no, sorry. And he said, oh, you're a really big man. I said, thanks. Yes, I am. I left that shop. I think I bought four handkerchiefs because that was the only thing he had that would fit me. But if you buy a certain size here in Australia that you go into possibly 
my experience is that across Asia, some of the sizes are smaller. You may have a different experience. That same size is not... You take that same size and go to America. They're all three different size garments because they're adjusted according to the kind of people that live there. So there's no standard. It's that great lie that retailers tell you that one size fits all. never actually does. Bless the Lord. We need to know what we believe. You need to be able to measure. When you hear somebody say something, when they make a statement and they say, this is what God says or this is what we should believe about God, you need to know how to examine that. You need to know how to hold that up to the tape and go, no, nah, something's not right here. Something's out of way. In Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul's writing to another young man. Some of his strongest statements about accurate doctrine was, was Paul impressed upon young pastors that he was training because he knew that the time would come when he was gone, that it would be their job to carry the yardstick. It would be their job to say, this is how long, this is how wide. You know, I, I, I grew up, my, my pastors before me, Brother Gavin, my mother will testify, our pastor in Townsville, he taught doctrine again and again and again and again. And then when he finished, he taught it again. Because he knew when the time came when his ministry was finished. There had to be somebody else that knew how to teach doctrine. So if I teach it again and again and again, you'll have to forgive me. Somebody hit me with the yardstick often enough that I have to preach it again and again and again. But Paul said to Titus, he said, holding fast or not letting go of the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine, good teaching, both to exhort or encourage and to convince the gainsayers or those that, that repose it. You know, you need to be able to give an answer for what you believe. And then he said in verse 10, for there are many, not just a couple, there's many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision. That was talking about particularly not just Jews, but the Jews that were trying to get the New Testament church back under the law, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. In other words, they were leading people astray for their own financial well-being. How will you challenge your false doctrine if you don't know the true doctrine? I want to read that same passage from the Amplified Version. It says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word of God as it was taught to him so that he will be able both to give an accurate instruction in sound or reliable, error-free doctrine and to refute those who contradict it by explaining their error. For there are many rebellious men who are empty talkers. I love this bit. Just windbags. And deceivers especially those of the circumcision or those Jews who insist that Gentile believers must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching things that should not, they should not teach for the purpose of dishonest financial gain. If they wrote about it in the first century, if you've got a Bible program on your phone or your iPad or your computer, don't do it now, but do when you can help me. Search the New Testament for the word false. You'll find it lists false teachers, false prophets, false brethren, false accusers. There's a whole bunch of false things in there that we need to know about. It's not about being judgmental. It's not about being harsh with people. It's about knowing what you believe. It's about knowing the Word of God. It's just, we're talking about something that's to hold on to. 
Amen. I've said, I say this often and I will continue to say it. But if you are listening to or watching preaching because you like the style or the manner or you enjoy the person's ministry, but you don't know what their foundation is. In other words, what they believe about who God is, what they believe about how we must be saved, what they believe about how you live a Christian life, you are adding confusion to your soul. Again, I'm not against listening to or watching preaching. I do it. I think it's great. And I'm happy to recommend some preachers to you. But you need to know where they stand before you let them influence you. I'll go as far, you might think this is humorous, but I'll go as far as to say it is less spiritually dangerous for you to watch Netflix than to watch a preacher who with half-truths and clever ideas. Am I saying you should watch Netflix? No, I'm not. You shouldn't waste your time on that rubbish. But at least you know that's fiction. At least when you watch that, you know it's made up. There's too much preaching that takes a little bit of Scripture, weaves it together with some philosophy, adds a dash of humanism, and makes it sound legitimate. The Word of God is the first and most important strand in your cord. Now, this is not a popular view. But if you're interested in popularity, you're in the wrong place. Jesus wasn't looking for popularity. In fact, he said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Amen. The Word of God is the first strand in our court. The second strand is experience. We all need to have an experience with God. God needs to be alive in us. The things that the Word of God says, we need to see, we need to hear, we need to do. Otherwise, we should take our Bibles, put them back in the box that it came in and put it on the bookshelf next to the other books of history. Because if it, if it isn't still supposed to happen anymore, then it's just a collection of stories about people that lived two to 6,000 years ago. That's all it is, is historical stories. And you know, that's pretty much what happened to Israel as a nation. They strayed so far from God. They disobeyed Him so many times. They forgot who they were and they forgot why he was inseparable from their identity. And so when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the last Old Testament prophet Malachi finishes his writings and they begin a period of 400 years of silence from heaven. It's called the intertestamental period of silence. That's what they call it when you go to Bible school. In other words, 400 years where God didn't talk to them. They had culture. They still had culture. They had tradition. They really had tradition. And they had religion. You look at the Jews that, that in the beginning of the New Testament, they sure had religion. But all of their sen- stories were centuries old. They were all things that God did, not what he was doing. And then out of the heat haze of the Judean wilderness comes a sun-weathered man by the name of John the Baptist begins to stir up that dead nation. It says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Make straight pathways for the Lord. Get ready for the coming of the Lord. And then a few months later, his cousin in the natural, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene and all of a sudden in a dead nation, water is turned into wine. Deaf ears begin to hear. Blind eyes begin to see. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. Multitudes are fed miraculously. 
And the people who were the recipients of these miracles had only ever heard about such things in the stories of their ancestors until now. Now it wasn't stories anymore, but it became experience. It became experience. And then while he was doing all these incredible things, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, in John 14, 11 and 12, he said, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, He that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. He said, I'm doing these things so that you can believe that the Father is in me. He said, but not only that, if you'll believe on me, you'll do these things. And greater works than these. Now, I don't want to get off track, but how do we do greater works than Jesus did? Greater can mean in number. The only problem there is we don't really know how many miracles Jesus did. There's no catalog in the back of your Bible. There's some passages where it says he went into certain places and healed everybody. Whether it's 10, 100, 1,000, we don't know. But the context of John chapter 14 is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. The greatest miracle is when a soul is filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He's not saying that you'll fill people with the Holy Ghost, but he's saying you'll be there after the Spirit is poured out. You'll be able to lay hands on people and they shall receive the Holy Ghost. That's the greatest miracle that there is. Amen. He gave his disciples power to do the miraculous. Then he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and then the church was born in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the declaration of the church's birth was the Word of God packaged together with an experience. They took one strand and they begin to wind it onto another. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And then the book of Acts went on to see the church grow, and to spread throughout the known world. And the way the church operated was a consistent, powerful combination of the preached Word of God and an experience as a result of the preached Word of God. This is not meant to be history. What it says can happen still happens. I mean, I want you to raise your hand up high if God's ever healed your body. Keep it up there unless it starts to hurt. Now, Add to that, if your hand's not already up, if God's ever done another miracle for you other than just a healing in your body. If he's delivered you from an addiction, raise your hand. If he set you free from some sort of spiritual bondage, raise your hand. Look around the room. This is not history. This is the experience that goes with the Word of God. I didn't even ask you to put your hand up if you've got the Holy Ghost. That's a miracle as well. Amen. That's why in Mark 16, in verse 15, Jesus said unto them, Go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Give them the word of God, every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. If you believe, you'll get baptized. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. That doesn't mean you go around picking up snakes. It's talking about the Lord protecting us. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. 
You need to experience God. If you're going to hang on, you need to have an experience. You need to be able to say that this is what the Bible says and that it happened to me. That's why the first strand has to be the Word of God. The most important strand has to be the Word of God because if your experience contradicts the Word of God, it's not of God. That's important we understand. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel except that which we have preached, let them be accursed. He said, I don't care if an angel comes to your house. If it doesn't line up with the first strand, they're accursed. They're not just politely declined. They're accursed. That's why the first strand matters because you see spiritual experiences can come from a variety of sources. They're not all God. Moses went into Pharaoh's palace, took his shepherd's rod. The the Lord said, okay, what's that in your hand? Showed him some powerful things. Said, all right, Moses, throw that thing on the ground. Threw it on the ground. Moses' rod turned into a serpent. That freaked me out right there. But then Pharaoh calls his magicians over. They take their rods and they can do the same thing. Not all power is of God. But God has the last word because Moses' rod ate the other ones. And each miracle that God used Moses to do, the magicians tried to keep pace with Moses, but it reached a point where their power reached a limit and the power of God through the man of God kept on going. Not every spiritual experience is God-ordained. That's why we need the Word of God. They've got to pass the scriptural test. It's got to pass. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have an experience that isn't recorded in the Word of God. That's different. There's a difference between having an experience that the Scripture doesn't record and having an experience that is contradictory to the Word of God. There were things that happened in the book of Acts that they'd never experienced before. They they didn't have a precedent for, but they happened. You know, Peter's walking down the footpath. People are bringing out the sick and the lame, lying them on the street so that his shadow might pass over them. That was so high was their faith to receive. God responded to their faith, but he didn't start shadow ministries. It was a genuine experience. It didn't contradict the Word of God, but nowhere in the Word of God did he say, and then Peter started his own ministry called In the Shadow of My Walkings, or whatever. There's nothing wrong with having an experience that is not in the Scripture. There's something very wrong with having an experience that is contradictory to the Scripture. Amen. We have to pass... The Scripture test. Amen. And now let me tell you something about experience with God. If there's an experience that you know God wants, if you've never been baptized with the Holy Ghost, God wants you to have the Holy Ghost. He wants you to know what the Word of God says about the Holy Ghost. And that's where you should be getting your information from. And if you feel like, Lord, I'm trying, I just don't know what to do, God will make a way. There's a very well-known story in the Scripture, and it's, it's not in the slides, but where Jesus comes to a place called the Pool of Bethesda, where every desperate, hopeless case is because at a certain season, an angel comes down and troubles the water, and the first person into the water is healed. So everybody who's tried everything else is there hoping. Imagine trying to compete for a miracle. Imagine if we said, all right, this morning God said there's one miracle in the building. Who wants it most? But this man, the Lord said to him, what is it that you need? What do you want? And he said, Lord, I've been in this condition. He said, when the angel comes, 
he obviously was physically incapacitated. Somebody beat him into the pool every single time. And God crossed over his limitation and said, rise up and walk. And because he responded to that, he had to rise up. Jesus didn't say, let me help you up. He said, rise up. That man moved by faith and got the miracle that God had promised him. Amen. We've got to be able, our experience must pass the scriptural test. If you claim to be Pentecostal, then your experience must line up with what happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. As unfortunately, too many people, too many churches claim to be Pentecostal because they speak in tongues when they receive the Holy Ghost. Let me be very clear. You should speak in tongues when you receive the Holy Ghost. That is the consistent biblical witness that we have. But on the day of Pentecost, when Peter finished preaching, what was the first response of the crowd that he was preaching to? Verse 41 of Acts 2. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I think it's fairly obvious that they were baptized in Jesus' name as he had instructed them three verses earlier. So being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is just as Pentecostal as speaking in other tongues when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So when you say you're Pentecostal, you better say my whole experience lines up. If it's incomplete, you need to ask the Lord to do something about that. Amen. If it's, in, if it's incomplete, we may not have obeyed Peter's instructions all the way. We need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to be Pentecostal. You need to be able to take the strand, as it were, of the Word of God and wrap it together with the strand of your experience and they should be the same length and they should measure up one to another. Some of you know about the what often is considered the beginning of modern-day Pentecostalism. About 120 years ago in a place called Topeka, Kansas, there's a man named Charles Parham had a group of believers together in something of a Bible school. I don't know how structured it was, but I think it was at the end of the year, the Christmas New Year period, if I, if I remember correctly. They, they got together and they said, we are going to take a break. And while we're not meeting together anymore, in this, in this break over the, I think it was possibly the Christmas period, he said, independently, I want each of you to pray and read the Word of God and ask this question. What was the evidence that people were filled with the Holy Ghost? And so they went away, and they did that, and they all came back together. And one by one, as they answered the questions, they said, the evidence in the Scripture was always that people spoke with other tongues. And what they realized was that their experience was incomplete. And so they began to pray. They began to seek the Lord that what His Word said would happen, would happen. And if memory serves me correctly, the first person to receive the Holy Ghost was an African-American lady by the name of Agnes Osmond. She asked Charles Parham to lay hands on her and she began to speak in tongues as the Spirit of God enabled her to and then others did there as well. And if you know anything about modern Pentecostal history, it spread like wildfire across the country and then across the world because they wanted to make sure that the strand of their experience lined up with the strand of the Word of God if they're going to wrap those things together. Amen. And our experience matters. 
You need to be experiencing the power of God today. If you've been in church a long time, if most of your experience is historical, you need to say, Lord, you haven't changed. You're still the same. Why am I not having the same kind of experience? I'm not saying you get born again, again, and again. That happens once. But there needs to be a present experience to connect with the Word of God. Amen. We have to, Our experience must line up with the Scriptures. And the final strand I want to speak to you about this morning is about a community of faith or the church. The Scriptures have many examples of how the church is like a body. You read Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 where it's teaching about the gifts of the Spirit. You'll see that it is emphatic that the parts are supposed to fit together, that each part is unique, that it is designed to be unique, that one part can't look to another part and say, I don't need you because you're an ear and I'm a foot or whatever, but all parts are necessary, designed to fit together to contribute towards the body growing and and being effective. It lets us know that we are all valuable in the sight of God and that not one of us is more valuable than the other. You get on to Hebrews chapter 10, there is instruction to us that to place, we are to place a high priority on gathering together like this. And in fact, there needs to be an increase of priority as we see the day of the Lord's return drawing closer. The only logical conclusion to that instruction is that being together has to play an important role in being ready for the sound of the trumpet. If we are told to put more urgency on gathering together as his return draws near, there must be a connection between the two. Us gathering together must play a part in us being ready for Jesus' return. Amen. And I've I've taught on a lot of that before, but I want to finish this morning with a, a passage of Scripture that will hopefully bring these three strands together and encourage you to hold on to them. So if you'll go with me to the book of Acts chapter 15. We're going to read a a pretty big chunk out of this chapter. Just to lay a little bit of a foundation for this chapter. The New Testament church is alive with experience and growth. The church was launched from the foundation of the Word of God, which, as far as national Israel was concerned, had laid dormant for centuries. Now the prophecies from the Old Testament that included things such as the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the salvation of the Gentiles, were coming to pass. When Joel said, upon your sons and your daughters, he poured out his, his spirit, it was happening. The church was growing. This was an exciting period. It presented the church with challenges. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? We, we know that in Acts chapter 6, the church leaders had to make decisions about dealing with some people that were unhappy about the way they were being treated and that when they made those decisions prayerfully, God blessed their decisions. And the church continued to grow. And now when we get to sort of two-thirds, halfway two-thirds through the book of Acts, we've got Gentiles being born again, non-Jews being born again in every different part of the world. And in this new church that is still trying to establish its identity, you've got Jews that are upset that the Gentiles aren't keeping the law of Moses as they have for centuries. And people saying, well, they have to keep the law. They should still be circumcised like we had to under the law. And others saying, well, they're, they're not Jews. We're in a new covenant. There was, there was confusion going on. You know, don't be surprised when revival happens if it brings things we're not sure how to handle. 
When God moves and people are experiencing God, all kinds of things can happen, and that's not a problem. But this issue was threatening to divide the church. And so that is the platform, that is the background of of where we find ourselves when we get to Acts chapter 15, and we'll start at verse 1. It says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty strong statement. False teachers. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. That's King James English for they had it out. That's old English. No small dissension was things got heated. There was some good old-fashioned biblical debate going on there. Amen. And when they had these this dissension and disputation, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. We need to sort this out. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. There's experience. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, good old-fashioned ding-dong again was going on, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's referring back to Acts chapter 10 when he went to see Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family, and he preached to them about Jesus and him crucified. And while he was speaking, God put out his spirit on that man and his household. Amen. And in verse 8, he says, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. He said, I gave them the word. God gave them the experience. Amen. And put no difference, verse 9, put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He said, why are you trying to bring laws on them that we haven't been able to keep for hundreds of years? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence, They gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. They'd preached the word. They'd been experienced. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. James, it seems, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. Some call him the the bishop. They didn't have those terms so much back then, but he seems to have been the elder of the church there. He said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. He tied in the scripture, as it is written. Then he quoted a prophecy. After this I will return, will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is, in other words, this is our decision. He wasn't, he wasn't dictating, there'd been discussion. 
But he said that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, all kinds of immorality, from things strangled and from blood. They weren't to eat or drink blood. The animals were to be bled. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters to them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the Lord to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord, that's a powerful statement right there, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent them, and we have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meat offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves you shall do well, fare ye well. Sorry, it's a long reading, but it's an important passage. The church had never officially faced this issue before at an official level. There's all kinds of different opinions going on and confusion was happening. It was new territory. But the situation in their resolving it included the following components. The Word of God was the first thing. They acknowledged they'd been preaching the gospel. They acknowledged that the prophets in the Old Testament said that the Lord would, the Gentiles would call upon His name. There were people that were experiencing the things that the Word of God said that they could. And so after considering the Word and the experience and considering the different sides of the dispute, the leaders of the church made a decision and communicated that decision to the church both locally and abroad. And the things they took into account, again, what the Scripture said, what the people had experienced, those had to line up, the testimony of the church, and what seemed good to the Holy Ghost. And the church was given direction together. We need to be in a community of faith. Because we will as a church, and if you don't think so, look around you, we will face things that we've not faced before. Society will bring up issues and we thought nobody ever imagined that would happen. Anybody testify to some of the things we've seen in the last five years? Nobody ever thought that would happen. I never thought I'd see that day. I never thought that would be legal. I never thought that would be normalized. I never thought anybody even think that way. And we have to be able to take the Word of God, the experience of its promise, and as a community of faith, respond as directed by the Holy Ghost. You might think the church doesn't have the authority to do that. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I am? And they say, Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. And then the Lord said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, You're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he said, and upon this rock, which rock? The revelation that he was the Christ. Upon that rock, I'll build my church. 
and the gates of hell, death and the grave shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Peter gave us those in Acts chapter 2. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed. And God gave the church authority to make decisions. They had to be within the parameters of the Word of God. They could not go off the foundation or they'd be on sand. So we need the three chords, if I can encourage you with it this morning. We must have the Word of God. That is where everything is measured by. If it doesn't line up, get rid of it. We must also have the experiences that are promised in the Word of God and that as a church body we ought to work together to face whatever this world presents us and to be led by the Spirit of God. If you can hold on to those things, it does not matter what comes your way. He will bring you through the other side. Stand with me if you would this morning. Thank you, Jesus. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Amen. Thank the Lord for His Word. But I'm so grateful that we don't just get together and tell stories from Scripture about things that used to happen. But when we read about people being born of the water and of the Spirit, when we read of how they that gladly received the Word were baptized, we do the same thing. When people here gladly receive the Word, we baptize them in Jesus' name. When the promise is unto you and to your children, people are still filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We have to have the Word, we have to have the experience, and we need to be part of a community of faith.